Hey guys, Pastor Mike Reed here. Thankful that God led you to tune into this video sermon. Uh, our prayer is very simple. We pray that God would use the preaching of God's Word uh, to grow you more in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray it blesses you, nourishes you, and encourages you. All right. Good morning. How are we? Sorry. Good to be with you guys. And if you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is near the uh, back of your New Testament. You'll hit some longer books like Hebrews, James, and then uh, uh, um, 1 Peter's there. There are seats up here, and there's not really many, but right here in the front, there's three. Calling you out. Uh, well, if you're new or visiting, good. Glad that you're here. Glad you get to worship with us. This is a worship service. We love to worship Jesus. We do that by singing. That's why we sing the songs that we just sang. We sit under the teaching of God's word as a way to worship him. That's why we're uh, spending this portion here doing that as well. We also worship Jesus by uh, taking the Lord's Supper each week or communion. You might have heard it a few different ways in your background. That's what these tables are up front. And that's so we can remember the body and blood, the body that was broken so we didn't have to suffer and die for sin. And and the blood that was shed that was necessary to forgive sin and give us righteousness. And Christ alone does that. That's why we're thrilled about that. So we uh, do this each week not as a way to earn God's favor or believe that it imparts righteousness to you. That Christ alone did not already give you. But a way that we can remember and be strengthened and nourished by uh, his saving benefits in Christ. And we also uh, worship by being generous because God was generous. We give on the silver boxes on the back wall and many of you give online as well, and I always say if you're not a regular attender, remember, uh, please do not feel compelled to give. I want you to know Christ. Um, one just uh, important note before we dive into the text this morning is our covenant member gatherings, October 20th. If you are a covenant member, uh, this is not the class. This is for those of you who are uh, currently members. It's from 1230 to 230. Child care is provided through first grade, and there will be lunch for all you hangry people who uh, around 1230 just really desire food. So uh, it's going to be an important meeting for us to gather and talk about some real uh, specific and particular ways why membership's meaningful and and uh, how we want to grow in grace together in that particular lane into the future. So look forward to seeing you there. Just mark your calendar. We'll remind you the next couple weeks as we get closer. Why don't we pray and then we'll uh, dive into the text. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that uh, you've given us your word to uh, know you and to realize that you uh, know us, and thank you that it's a mirror, your word says, that as you, we hold it up, it perfectly exposes who we are and leads us into greater joy and life with you. Uh, we pray that where we need conviction, we'd have conviction. Where we need exhortation, we'd have exhortation. Where we need encouragement, we'd be encouraged. Where we need help and illumination in particular areas or spaces, we don't have it, that you grant us that. And God, I pray that we'd be moved. Uh, because we were together today and because we sat under your word and because we thought more about the life, death, and resurrection once again together in Jesus' name, amen. First uh, Peter, we're in the book of First Peter. First Peter, in case you're unfamiliar with who Peter is, we've been uh, walking through this letter that Peter wrote. Peter was a disciple and apostle of Jesus. He was someone who uh, was very human. Uh, he failed Jesus, he denied Jesus, uh, and ultimately ran to Jesus. Jesus restored him, and he was reminded that he belonged to Jesus. He was reminded that he is an elect exile, that he will be persecuted, that he will be mocked, that he will be even scorned for the faith, 
faith and faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, he's also an exile. He is the most precious, prized, loved person on the planet because Christ has him. Because he belongs to Jesus. He doesn't belong to culture. He belongs to Christ. And he writes this letter to um, a group of people who this is after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has fallen in power. The gospel's being preached. Peter's actually the first person recorded in the New Testament who gives a profound sermon in Acts 2. And, and he gives this sermon and he's preaching. Now, now he's writing to people who are experiencing empire-wide persecution. People actually came to faith because of his sermon. And now they're realizing saying, wow, people don't like it. Um, the New Testament's constantly going to lay before you that you're going to walk around people, live around people, serve around people who don't love the God that you love. They don't serve the God that you serve. In fact, they're antagonistic towards it. And so that shouldn't be a surprise to you. Uh, that should be something that leads us into Christ more and into his people more for the glory of God and a witness to the nations. That's what Peter really wants us to get through his letter. And so he's writing this. And I want to remind you, a key that kind of, I believe, unlocks this entire letter is reading almost every text in this book from the frame of because you belong to Jesus, because you're an elect exile. And here he's very simply going to say this morning, because you belong to Jesus, be holy. Because you belong to Jesus, be holy. And I love it. It's not just holiness for holiness sake. It's be holy because I want you to be a witness to the nations. Your opposition is opportunity for mission. That's what Peter wants us to know this morning. So verse 13, here's what Peter starts to say. Therefore, now if you were here last week, Pastor McKinney yelled at you because he wanted you to hear and be reminded of therefores and how important they are. He always is good at reminding us of that. Well, therefore, he's going to say because of what he just said in verses 1 through 12, here's what we do. Peter, what do we do? He says, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's one of the things out of the many things I love about the Bible is that all of the writers of the New Testament will not let you get away from that the fuel for who you are and all that you will do and all that you will live by is solely done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like everything. Like you never drift from that. You never get away from that. And here, Peter's saying it right here. Prepare your minds for action, which means you're called to think. You're actually called to use this noggin right, and think about something, see something with your mind. Well, Peter, what am I supposed to think about? What am I supposed to see? What am I supposed to, as the forefathers call meditation, what am I supposed to meditate on? And he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, therefore, Therefore, um, think about your new birth. Think about being born again. Think about your inheritance that you have that's unperishable, undefiled, kept by God for you through his power. Think about that you're his child. Think about that you're an elect exile. Think about this gospel. Mike McKinney said last week that the angels are savoring, the prophets are preaching, the Holy Spirit is guiding us. And think about that. And be prepared. How are you prepared as an elect exile? As a foreigner in a strange land with a hope of heaven and a citizenship and a kingdom that's coming? He says, you think about your new birth. You think about that you were born again. You think about the mind that you have. You think about the fact that you are now a new creation in Christ. It's, that's all he's getting at. Is you, you never drift from this. This is why 
Life, death, resurrection is the drumbeat of not just the church, but our hearts. Like the second you wake up and you're dwelling on something other than who Christ is, your position before him, and what he's done in this great, beautiful gospel work, then all you are is practicing religion, right? That, that's all you're doing. I mean, it's, it's fear-based, not love-based. It's, it's driven by religion and not gospel. And Peter wants to make sure that you understand as he turns the course of this letter now from talking about this is who you are to this is how you live, that you don't drift from the fuel as to why you're living the way you're living. You're not living so holy so God will like you. You're setting your hope on Jesus Christ so that as you live, you're living because it's who you already are. I've said a lot, the process of really being a Christian is the process of becoming who you already are. That's what it means to be a Christian. And here he says, fix your eyes. Think about this work. You gaze at it. I was thinking about Colossians 3, that language where you fix your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on heavenly things, not earthly things. You think about Hebrews 12, looking to who? Jesus, who's what? The author and perfecter of what? Your faith, right? You don't perfect your faith, he does, right? So you're, you're looking constantly to what he's done and that actually perfects your faith. So, so Peter's saying what, this is not foreign to the Bible. This, he's just repeating something that all the New Testament writers have been saying, Paul and Jesus and Peter and James and others, which is look to Jesus, look at what he's done. And this is why last week, I don't know if you picked up on it, the last text Pastor McKinney preached, which is insane, the angels long to look at this. They long to look, you know, Christ didn't die for angels. He died for humans. Now you don't wanna know why that's insane? That's insane because that means the angelic host doesn't have the ability to glean the depths of the gospel that you and I have. They haven't experienced it. They just kind of like look at it. They're like watching God save. We don't just watch God save, you experience being saved. Thank you, Jesus. Like, that's awesome. You're not, you're not just kind of speculating or spectating at what's happening. You're actually experiencing that. And this is what Peter's trying to drive home into our hearts, which makes sense. Because if you're going to live a holy life, you can't live a holy life by just obeying rules. You obey and you're holy because of love that's happened to you. Verse 14, as obedient children. Now he's going to get into obedience. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it's the assumption of Peter, the assumption of Jesus, the assumption of all the writers of the New Testament that you will live, interact, and be around people that do not love the God that you love, who do not serve Jesus Christ, who do not see him as savoring, who do not see him as glorious, who do not see him as majestic, who do not see him as king. So he says, you be holy, you be set apart. That's normal for the Christian. You're going to live differently. Now, as we're moving towards obedience, my concern is some of us hear that word and we have a wrong view of obedience. And this has created so much error in Christian circles and in largely the Christian faith, which is um, you believe that obedience is consistently and constantly something you're trying to do to get God to like you. 
or to earn favor. And you have to see what Peter's talking about and where Peter's saying this in his letter. So I'm going to give you two words because I want to make sure obedience is not religious-based but gospel-based, okay? Because that's what Peter wants you to get here as he turns the corner in this letter. And he's going to discuss for the remainder of this letter what's called imparted righteousness. Now, the reason you need to understand that is there's a difference from what's known as imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness. So some of you guys are like, those are two huge theological words. I'm probably going to forget them on my way out. Write them down because if you can just catch those two, it'll save you from a great deal of error in your Christian walk, okay? So he's, he's rolling into not imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness for the remainder of this letter. Now here's why that's so important. You have imputed righteousness, um, which is basically the theological understanding that, that when Christ came, Christ lived your life for you in perfect obedience to the Father, that he died the death you should have died, that he was a substitute that you needed in your place for your sin to atone for sin, to be a propitiation, which means appease wrath of God towards you in your sin, and he dies, but the Bible says he didn't stop there. Like, he didn't just erase your debt. He actually gifted you his infinite righteousness. So you're not good at zero. You need righteousness. You don't just need to be forgiven. You need to be righteous as he is. And it's this great declaration of God that he credits you his righteousness in your place, free of charge, solely by faith. Okay, so, so that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter talked about that in verses one through 12, okay? What he's rolling into now is you be holy because that's who you are. You don't obey to try and get God to make you holy. So here's why I want you to understand this is because otherwise when Peter turns to this and says, okay, because you belong to Jesus, be holy, some of you are going to read that and say, okay, I need to obey so God will accept me and give me his righteousness. No. You obey and you're holy because God has already given you his righteousness. This is why Kevin DeYoung said salvation is not the reward for obedience. It's the reason for obedience. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. It's the reason for obedience. So, imparted righteousness. We're not only declared righteous, but, but we're imparted righteousness. This is how now we live and grow in righteousness. Look at Philippians 2, verse 12. It talks about this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So imparted righteousness is the act of God through the power, presence, and enablement of his Holy Spirit to actually allow you to actually live out and impart to you this righteousness that is yours. And it's progressive. We believe in progressive sanctification. You progressively become more like Jesus Christ. So he actually imparts to you fruits of the Holy Spirit so that as you read and study your Bible and walk with Jesus and get in growth groups together and encounter discipleship, he actually uses those means of grace, the gathering on Sunday, to begin to impart to you righteousness, to allow you to walk in this. Now here's why this is so wonderful. 
You go back to 1 Peter 1, 15, where now he looks at you and says, hey, be holy because I'm holy. You know, that's great news now because you've been given not just an imputed righteousness, you've been given an imparted righteousness. So you actually can look at that and you can be holy. I mean, this is, this is so important. Jesus dies for your sin and gives you his righteousness so you actually, when you're tempted, can say no to sin and can say yes to holiness and yes to Jesus. And then even when you stumble and fail, you can once again appeal to the unwavering, unbreakable, imputed righteousness that is yours in Christ alone. <laughs> Do you see that circle? Or am I the only one who sees it? Right, like it's just, it's wonderful. He gives you the authority, power, and ability to say no to sin, no to temptation, yes to Jesus, yes to confession, yes to walking in the light, and he also gives you help when you stumble and fall miserably, like you and I will daily, to once again appeal to the unchanging stance you have with him. That's what it means to live as a Christian. You have to have both of those, and Peter gets that, and Peter wants you to see this, and this is why he says in there, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. That word conformed just means don't be shaped by. Don't let something rub off on you to where you become like that thing. And in particular, he's obviously talking about culture. He's talking about our old life. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, a change happens, right? It says we've gone from being old creations to new creations. It's a transformation. You're not just like a tweaked new version. You're made new. And he says, so don't be conformed to the way you used to live. I thought of Romans 12, right? Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So then you can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Right? So, so the Bible says, don't be conformed. Peter says, don't be conformed. Right? So the world lays out a pattern for us. Right? He says, don't be conformed to that. You're a new creation now. You've been born again. You have a future inheritance. You have this great gospel. You're an elect exile. You belong to Jesus. So don't, don't conform to, to culture. Don't conform to how everybody else lives. You have a new way of seeing life, a new way of seeing people, a new way of living and operating and, and adjusting and encountering. You're, you're a totally new creation, so don't conform. I mean, I just thought, how, how many of us... <laughs> We just, how many things do we do just because everybody else does it? Or why do we dress the way we do? I don't know, because everybody dresses like that. Why do we watch what we watch? I don't know, everybody's watching that. Why do we listen to what we listen to? I don't know, everybody's listening to that. Why do we get on the podcast we get on? Because everybody's podcasting that. Why do we talk the way we do? Because everybody talks like that. Why, why do we strive for a standard of living? I don't know, because everybody strives for that standard of living. And, and the Bible goes, hold on a second. Because I always have to like take a step back and go, okay, no, hold on a second. Like, what's your pattern for me? Or like, God, what's your will for me? What's, what's, what's the way that you want me to live? How do you want me to see things? How do you want me to see people? How do you want me to see my neighborhood? How do you want me to see what I do? Right? Because we don't conform. And look, we no longer conform because we realize we used to walk in former ignorance. You don't conform any longer. You live holy because you used to walk in what was ignorant. Now, I'm just curious. Was this you? Is this you? Think about that for a second. Prior to Jesus, 
meeting Jesus, walking with Jesus now? Is this you? Former ignorance. Meet Christ. Christ is better, more satisfying, more fulfilling, and I'm looking back going, yeah, that was ignorant, that was foolish. You could roll this out in a number of ways. It, it could be for some of you, I used to be consumed by my appearance. It's all I used to think about. It's all I used to participate in. It's, it's the only place I found my worth, and then I met Christ. and I realized who I am in him, and my identity in him, and my value in him, and that's just ignorance to me now. For some of us, it could be addictions or vices. I mean, before I was trying to numb pain and escape reality and, and just try to fix what was wrong in my heart. I met Jesus and I realized that, that all of that was ignorance. That was foolishness. That was temporary. For some of us, maybe it's just good deeds. Man, I used to live my life just being a good person, doing all these good works. Well, look at me, look at me. And then I met Jesus and realized, man, he did all my good works for me. That was so foolish to believe I could merit God's love based upon performance when he performed for me perfectly. Others, others of us, maybe it was all about being popular or being esteemed or everybody liking you. And you look back and say, yeah, before Christ, I was consumed by that. I mean, everything I did, how I functioned, what I posted, what I, what I, how I operated in friendship was all solely based upon will they like me, what will they say. And then you met Jesus and you said, man, that, that was so foolish. That was ignorance. Peter says, there's a new way that we live now. I met Jesus. He changed me. I have a new birth. I'm reborn. I'm, angels long to look into this glory that is mine now. Is that you? Was it former ignorance? Maybe some of you used to be consumed with money and material and what you had or what you gained. And then you met Jesus and realized, verse 5 of chapter 1, that my inheritance is insane. I mean, eternity is insane. Why exhaust my life when I have eternity to retire and rest? But this holiness has a purpose. Um, this living differently, and he's going to get into the nuances of that, so that's why I'm not taking today to talk about that. He, he wants you to see first this holiness has purpose. It's opportunity for mission. Verse 17 and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So if you call on him as father, you're what? You're his kid. You're his child, which means you're what? You belong to Jesus, which means you're what? You're an elect exile. So he's assuming that's you. So if you, if you call on him as father, if, if you do belong to Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have been born again, if you are an elect exile, if you do have this inheritance, if this gospel has been made yours by faith and grace through the work of Christ, he says to you, then, then you live aware that your father sees all and will judge you accordingly. You live in fear in your exile. That, that word fear means just in awareness of or in awe of. And, and here particularly, you know whose you are, which shapes how you live where you are. So if you call on him as father, you're aware that, that he sees all, and therefore living with fear during this exile, you live as though you are his and really your father. You're aware of whose you are and where you are. Here's what Peter's doing. 
Peter is connecting your holiness with you being aware of that it's not just about you trying to be set apart for you. You're set apart so it would be a rippling effect, a reverberation to those around you. Now, here's what's so important. As Peter's connecting not being conformed to their former ignorance to God's purpose in their exile, you're going to see that unfold for the remainder of this letter. He's going to show you how to live as aliens. He's going to show you how to live holy and how to live rightly amidst culture that's changing and Christ that's unchanging. He's going to show you that. But as he connects this, God doesn't just want me, Mike Reed, to live differently from all other individuals who exist. Like, that's not God's plan. It's, it's, it's true, and it's important that I live differently, but man, God wants a group of people to live collectively differently, so that would be a light and witness to others. Okay, so in the Old Testament, who did God call to be a witness and light to the nations, the watching nations? Israel. He didn't call the Israelites he called Israel. He says, I want you as a nation, as you as a group of people, people to look at you and go, man, your God's awesome. Your God's insane. Your God's strong. Your God's glorious. And, and the same way you go to the church, you have the church. This is why in chapter 2, Peter's going to say, you're a chosen people. You're a, you're a collective group of people, not just individual relationship with Jesus, but a collective relationship with Jesus. So as people see you living, see you operating, see you gathering, that's missional. That makes people go, what's that? Who are they? Why are they like that? Not just, why is Mike Reed like that? Why are they why is that assembly like that? That's what Peter's trying to help us understand and see. So Peter's hope, friends, is as these people are marginalized, as they're pushed to the skirts of culture, that they would burn as some of God's brightest lights. Do you know that the church of Jesus Christ has not only always thrived, but multiplied in the face of persecution? In the face of opposition? Like, do you know that's how God does some of his most beautiful work? We're just in the West. That's our problem. You talk to Shabazz, one of the missionaries that we support in Pakistan, uh, every day for him is serious opposition. You talk to Pastor Wilson down in Haiti, I'm texting with him this week, the stuff he tells me, I go, man, I'm like worried about is the light gonna be green? as I'm pulling in for Paramus, right? I mean, is Westwood gonna have traffic Sunday morning? Like, that's the weight of my concern. And Peter wants us to see, man, as culture runs downstream, we swim upstream in eagerness as to what God might do. <laughs> we do that with eagerness. Be holy. He's set apart, so we're set apart, and we're collectively supposed to look like something to be a light to the watching world, and that's going to be mission. That's going to be evangelistic. And so when we are mocked or persecuted or opposed or made fun of or rejected, it's opportunity to extend the hope in our hands, the good news of verses 1 through 12, that you can be born again. That you can find hope, a true living hope, not a dead hope. That you can have an inheritance. You can be freed from former ignorance. You can actually have a new way of living that is life-giving and, and, and soul-freeing and liberating and sin 
freeing from your enslavement. You can actually have those things. We live out of fear of the Lord, not fear of man. We live in fear in our exile. This is our exile, right? We don't fear people, though. We fear God. And we gladly fear God because we know he's at work through the opposition. How might this change your perspective at work or in your neighborhood or with family members or friends that you have who ridicule you or you believe shame you because of who you are in Christ? Take great joy in that. That's opportunity for mission. And he says, you must remember you were ransomed from the feudal ways and in turn, you want to ransom them from their feudal ways. Now, um, feudal ways inherited from forefathers is just the futility of tr- religious tradition. That's what he's talking about. You were delivered from this. You were freed from this. So part of this former ignorance of us once living a wrong way is believing that our works merit the righteousness of Jesus. Right? That's what he's specifically talking about here. It was, it was, it was believed that your works uh, were the thing that saved you, not the works of Jesus Christ. Those were their forefathers. You have the Pharisees, a large religious group of people who Jesus rebukes over and over and over. Matthew 15, uh, he says, your lips are, you know, you worship me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me because you seem to teach me, but really what you're teaching is doctrines of men. And then you can go to John 5, a really wild text where Jesus says to the same group of people, these forefathers who are in futility of religious tradition, hey, you're searching the scriptures thinking that you might find life in there and you forget that they're all really the point is to point to me where you find life. And you're missing it. And I'm Jesus standing right here. And you're searching the scriptures just thinking it's about rules and legislation and obedience to a law when I came to free you from the law so that you can worship me and find life in me and be holy not out of obligation that's religious but out of love that's fueled by love shown you. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. So Peter's just saying what Jesus said and said, uh, you remember the futility of that life? I'm not calling you to be holy because you have to be. I'm calling you to be holy because that's what you want to be. Because you're his. That's just Jesus' way of saying that your denomination doesn't save you. That communion doesn't save you. That baptism doesn't save you. Right? That you gathering on Sunday doesn't save you. That your participation in religious activity doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And when Jesus saves you, and you belong to Jesus, and you become an elect exile, and you realize you're born again, you realize you have an inheritance, you realize this unbelievable gospel that the prophets and the Holy Spirit and the angels are all thinking about and gleaming about and glowing about, you realize that, man, this is how I want to live, and you begin participating in the works of grace that God gives the church for mission in the face of opposition. Now Peter circles back, I love this, The fuel for your holiness and your mission is what? No surprise, the gospel again. (laughs) Just in case you forgot, he only let you go four verses. Verse 18. This all happened how? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What does Peter remind us of as he's talking about holy living? The gospel. What's Peter doing? Peter's saying, 
Don't ever drift. Life, death, resurrection, rinse and repeat. Life, death, resurrection, rinse and repeat. Let that be the drum that beats on your soul, the front doors of your church, the heart of your house. Let that be the thing that you think about. (laughs) I loved reading the little gospel story Bible. It's like blue. Forget the other name of it, I should. My wife bought it for Jackson. We're reading it last night, and, and it's amazing. Like, even hearing him read it last night at dinner, it's kind of like one of the rhythms we have. And he's reading about it. I love it. Every story in there, again, is life, death, resurrection. So, even our son last night is like, Dad, I'm noticing something. I'm like, What's that, Jax? He's like, Every story talks about Jesus. Amen. Great. Got an A on the, on the report card. That's beautiful that you're, that you're seeing that because that's what the whole Bible says. Like there's a lamb that came and rescued and ransomed you from all of this and he was without spot or blemish because you needed a substitute that was perfect. There's a guy named Thomas Watson. If you don't know who he is, he's just really cool. And he said something about this redemption that Peter's talking about. And just listen to it, and then we'll talk about it and close. He said redemption, that's the saving work of God. That's everything that Peter addressed in verses 1 through 12. Redemption is God's greatest work. Great was his work of creation, but greater was his work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to create us. In the one there was the speaking of a word. In the other there was the shedding of his blood. The creation was the work of God's fingers, but redemption is the work of his whole arm. Peter reminds us that this redemption was so amazing. It was so costly. It was so huge. That how could you not live holy? Like how could you not live set apart? I mean, it is by default who you are because this insane, supernatural, outside of you thing came into you and transformed you. So how could anyone leave? I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? How bizarre the Christian landscape is. Yeah, I can love Jesus. I don't got to look like him. Man, I love him. You don't love him. You admire him. You kind of spectate about him. You do not want to be like him. You do not love him. You do not follow him. And so this great work of redemption, Peter's reminding us, is the fuel for our holiness, fuel for our mission, any, for anything is the work of Christ in our redemption. And he draws their attention to a lamb and blood. And he does this because of their awareness of what's called Passover. And if you're unfamiliar with Passover, Passover was a, basically a week-long feast that was to celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt. Um, it's where God's people celebrated that we need a way made for us. We needed a substitute way made for us. We were in bondage and there was a substitute 
that was made for us and given to us. And it's recorded in Exodus. And if you're unfamiliar, um, just real briefly, uh, a guy comes to Abraham and he says, hey, uh, out of your children are going to come descendants. They're going to make this massive nation. Everyone's going to say, that, and I'm going to be the God of that nation. Everyone's going to say that nation's amazing and your God is amazing. And that happens. And what happens is if you track history, um, they end up, famine hits. They end up in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. They have good pharaohs. They have bad pharaohs, and it culminates with one really bad pharaoh, and that pharaoh basically abuses them and, and, and will not let them leave, and so God raises up a mouthpiece Moses and says, hey, go in and tell pharaoh you got a shot at mercy, you got to let my people go. He goes in, he asks, he pleads, pharaoh says no, Moses says you got one final shot, uh, you can let God's people go, or death is going to come. And this death that's going to come is to every household, the firstborn's going to die, if you're familiar with the story. Now here's what's amazing. Within the plague, God made a way for life to be spared. And so what they could do is they could take a lamb that was without blemish or spot, they could slaughter it and take the blood, and they could put it over the doorposts. And as the angel of death came, signifying the wrath of God towards sin, they would pass over the doors that had blood on it, showing that you can ha- be spared. Wrath can be passed over. Now, all of that was to point to Jesus, who would be our substitute and wrath taker. All, ultimately, that, that's what all that is, is pointing to. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, you have Jesus with Peter, the guy writing this letter. I think he's with John too. Not John chapter 2, he's with John also. So he's with, he's with John, he's Peter and John, they're kind of the three, James and John, Peter, and, and he's with them, and the night of his arrest and betrayal, right, the night of the Last Supper, uh, he goes to Peter and he says, hey, you need to go find a dude with water. He says a guy with water because back then women mostly only carried water. It'd be rare to find a guy with water, and that guy's going to have a lamb. Take his lamb, kill it, bring it, we're going to eat. So Peter, I don't think, really is sure what the heck is going on. So he does all that. He meets Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus institutes the Last Supper. If you know the story, if you're familiar with that. And there were lots of, belonging, lots of components to this, but it was all just a beautiful depiction of God remembering that God delivered them from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. They needed a substitute. They needed life to be spared, and God did it. Now, here's what they did during that time, though. They just lounged. They sang. They worshiped. They lingered. I don't even know that they realized they were lingering on the gospel. They were enjoying what Christ was going to do for them in the shedding of his blood, in being the perfect lamb, in being that one without spot, blemish, or stain. And they're just remembering the goodness and mercy of God in the Exodus. And as they're doing that, Jesus says one of the most profound statements in the history of mankind, I feel like. He says, in a sense, I'm saying it differently, I'm going to eat this lamb with you and then become the lamb for you. I'm going to to eat this with you. 
and then I'll become it for you. And here's what he's doing, showing it wasn't just some past event you celebrate, it's a future joy that you're gonna be a part of. Like, this isn't mystical, this is historical. This is real, and he makes clear this Passover meal is more than just remembrance, it's this declaration of the future, which is why he gives two components, body and blood. That's why he got it up here. Every week, bread and juice, bread and wine, body, blood. He gives it two components. He goes, body, basically because you're going to have to suffer for sin. You're not going to have to suffer for sin. I'm going to suffer for you in your place. I'm your substitute. I'm the way life will be spared. And then he says a massive statement. There's blood, and he says it's the new covenant. This is blood. Okay, you got you got lamb without spot or blemish, and you have the blood here, and he says, my blood's going to be shed, and my blood is going to basically be something new. You know what that means? It means he's shutting down the altar. (laughs) It means he's shutting down the ceremonial laws. It means he's shutting down the rituals. It means he's shutting down everything, and something totally new is happening. He's making a people through his blood, which all the Old Testament pointed to. So now what's amazing is you no longer need sacrifices because Jesus is your sacrifice. You no longer need the priesthood because we're actually the priesthood of believers with him as our high priest. That's why Peter's going to chat about it forever in chapter 2. We no longer need these things because we have Jesus. We don't need a temple because we're now the temple of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is showing you through all this, reminding you that this covenant that's coming is the only covenant that saves you. And he's with a weird way reminding them of this in this text in their motivation for holiness. Remember the lamb that did come, that was Jesus. Remember who made you born again, that was Christ. Remember who gave you an inheritance, that was Jesus who shed his blood. And this great meal is no longer to celebrate his deliverance from Egypt, but his deliverance at the cross. And we don't have to celebrate it once a year for a week-long feast. We celebrate it every week. You want to know why? Because he says, don't drift. Linger there. Give opportunity for people to once again be reminded of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we offer it every week, most weeks, except for like three times a year. Don't quote me. <laughs> Liar. No, yeah, there's a few times. The majority of you have been coming. We, we do this. This is why. This is why I think Paul screams out in Ephesians 2, you were once far off, were brought nearby what? The blood of Jesus Christ. He wants people to realize over and over, you're brought near not by the futility of your forefathers, religious tradition, but by the blood that was shed. So I know every waking moment of Mike Reed's life, I'm clean, I'm spotless, I'm holy, based upon no bit of what I've done, but based upon blood that was shed that was not my own on my behalf, Jesus. And I get to be, brought, I get to be brought near. <laughs> Feels warm. And now how this blood Peter draws our attention to connects to imputed and imparted righteousness. This blood that was shed is necessary not only for salvation but sanctification too. Which is why Jesus said at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. God is for me. Jesus was judged as me. The gospel continues to make us more like him, and it continues to be our motivation for holiness. So what do we do? What do we do? I think we do what Peter exhorts us to do. Um, 
You want to live wisely in your exile? Do you want to have hope through your trials and tribulations? Do you want the right frame of mind as you live on mission for the glory of God and suffer well for the glory of his name? Then don't drift from life, death, and resurrection. You want to be holy? Then don't drift from this. Don't drift from the blood. Don't drift from the cross. Don't drift from the resurrection. Don't drift from the gospel being told to you again. So I know that 90% of us probably live in the suburbs, New York City metro area. Some of us are other places. And I know a badge of honor for us is a one word, busy. Right? We're like a badge of honor. Have fun this week. Ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. They might even go a step further, slammed. They might even be like, I don't have time for your question, right? Like, I'm, who are you? <laughs> um, so, so here's my encouragement to you. Man, I realize that most of us are going to work 50 to 60 hours this week. But could I encourage you just to start creating space? Just start creating space where you can remember and linger on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you. That might mean that you get up 15 minutes earlier than you normally do to just read and remember. That might mean that you listen to Bible on audio in your drive. That might mean you turn the radio off and you just pray and talk with Jesus as you drive. That might mean that you find sermons that are helpful to you and reminding you and stirring you up towards remembering this great news of life, death, resurrection. Um, it might mean that you take some time as a family and, and set out new rhythms in your house as to what it might look like for you guys to create space where you can remember the life, death, and resurrection. It might mean at growth groups this week that you, you dial in in such a way that where you actually create intentional time to just think about it. I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning and my mind's broken. <laughs> like... I don't think the way I should. I don't feel the way I should feel. I don't, man, and I'll tell you, I can't tell you what 25 minutes of creating space will do for me. <laughs> so I'm with you, busy, right? But I can't tell you how helpful it is to rewire and re-engage and refocus. And here's the other piece. I mean, did you know that, here's what's so bizarre to me. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere anywhere are you commanded to remember the birth of Jesus. Did you know that? And yet we spent months doing that, right? No one commands you to put a manger scene in your lawn, yet you do it, right? No one commands you to spell Christmas on your roof, but, but we do it, right? But did you know that this, that imputation, impartation, redemption, atonement, propitiation, blood, sacrifice, forgiveness of sin, you know what Jesus commanded us to do? Linger, remember, celebrate until I return. He didn't command you to remember the birth of Jesus, even though we should, and we're not sinners for doing that. That's, that's wonderful that we do that and celebrate that, but man, this is the one thing Jesus said, commands us to remember. So that might we do that this week, and might we be moved. Jesus, we pray that you'd help us this week to see our holiness is a gift. 
opposition as a gift for mission, that you'd help us to be reminded and set upon the saving work of Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to linger and stay and consider and meditate upon the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, we pray that this would form and shape us as a people, as a church, as a witness to the watching world. We pray for your church at large, that the good news of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died and rose again victorious over Satan, sin, death, hell, and all that would hold him captive was unleashed in your powerful resurrection as God, reigning and ruling, sitting at the right hand gifting us your spirits that we might actually walk in the righteousness that you have purchased us with. And Jesus, as we consider your sacrifice again this morning, might it nourish us, strengthen us, encourage us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how it will strengthen you this morning.